Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. And for anyone else who loves the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We're both preachers who love the Old Testament and were Hebrew Bible PhD students at Emory University. Preachers who love the Old Testament, doesn't that feel sadly rare? It's true, Tim. But if you also love the Hebrew Scriptures and are looking for some resources to preach from them, well, welcome home. This week, we have a mini-episode for you, a sort of afternoon Nescafe reflection on Psalm 148. Tim, what have you got? (laughs) Well, Psalm 148 is, uh, it's a Hallel psalm. And we see that it has that imperative, Hallelujah, 12 times in 14 verses. In fact, uh, Psalms 145 through 50 are all Hallel psalms. 145 is labeled this way in the superscription, and the others, 146 to 50, they all begin and end with the word hallelujah. It's worth pausing on that, just to to think about that that word that kind of defines this psalm and the others around it. The verb hallel is a call to expression. It's sometimes used of the shining of lights. So the call to hallel is is a call to let your sort of appraisal of God, erupt out, shine out. So that makes me jump right away to a preaching angle on this psalm. Uh, On one level, hallelujah is a call to vocalize praise of God. But given all of the things that are called to praise God in Psalm 148, you know, how do stars praise God? How do waters praise God? How do trees and reptiles and birds praise God? This is more than about just reciting a hymn or even beyond what words can express since the call extends to these nonverbal creatures. Halleling God, praising God, is about your whole life, your, your very created existence, speaking God's splendor. So praise God with your hymns, of course, sure. <laughs> praise God with your eloquence, but also praise God with your paperwork and with your dishwashing and with your spending habits and with, with reading a good novel and with your grocery shopping. This poem draws the whole created order into a kind of vast choir, and the most mundane living out of your life as a creature of the Creator sounds a note in that chorus. Now, you'll probably recognize allusions to the creation story of Genesis 1 in this psalm. You've got the waters above the heavens in verse 4, creation by command in verse 5. You've got the the boundary waters of creation in verse 6, if you translate it like Robert Alter, that chok natan velo ya'avor. There's sea monsters and depths in verse 7, beasts in verse 10, including the creeping things, which you might remember from Genesis 1, which I take to be reptiles, but you know, they could also be bugs or something else. And just like the creation narrative in Genesis starts big, cosmically, and and then narrows in towards the creation of humanity, this poem also moves from the cosmic to the skies, to the land, to the land's inhabitants, to the peoples of the earth, and then finally in verse 14, to the people of God, the loyal ones, the chassidim, the people close to God, am kerovo, which literally means the people of God's nearness. This invites another preaching angle, I think. The, the massive cosmic creator 
who, who manages the oceans and sea creatures. In our parlance, we might say the God who, who manages traffic at the event horizon of black holes. <laughs> That's the same God who is near, who is close to God's people. This God is near to you, accessible by you. Hallelujah. That's a, that's a sermon. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. And we're done for the day. No. <laughs> um, I, I love how you brought that up about the nearness of the um, um, because krovo kerev can also be stomach. It can also refer to the torso part of the body, the middle of the body. So if you imagine being close to God and being held close by God, there's there's almost that sense of you know, just right in the heart of God or in the very midst of the divine is where his people are. That's right. That's right. A couple other linguistic tidbits to throw in here. Twice in verse 5 and 13, the call is to praise God's name. In Hebrew, God's Shem. And verse 13 elaborates that God's name alone is exalted or sublime. Shem, as we have mentioned before in our podcast, is a weighty term. It came up last week uh, in Psalm 23, in where God leads me in right paths for the sake of God's name. This psalm is celebrating God's name. And the nuance that I would suggest here is that that sort of intimate nature of a name. Praise the God who is known to us by name. And in verses 5 and 13, where the term Shem is used, it's followed by the tetragrammaton, the, the holy covenant name of God, the name by which God made the divine self known to the people of Israel in Exodus 3.15. And so that kind of reinforces this poetic sense of God's nearness in the psalm. Finally, there's that puzzling image in verse 14. God has raised up, or may God raise up, a horn for God's people. The Hebrew word there is keren, which is literally a horn, like the horn of a bull. But horn is often a poetic image for strength, power, political dominance, international prestige. Here, in the poetic structure of Hebrew poetry, keren is paralleled with tehillah, which means praise. Tehillah is from the same root as hallel. It's the noun form of praise. And incidentally, the Hebrew name of the book of Psalms, tehillim, is the plural form of this noun. So, the psalmist is ending this poem by praying that God would lift up the horn of the people by lifting up their praise. In other words, the strength, power, international reputation of this people is their praise of the Holy One. Mm. And I think there's some, something to preach in that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because I think when you think of power, um, Essentially, the people's power lies in their praise of God, not in their military might, not in their posturing, not in the, the wealth that they might have. Their power is in praise. Um, and man, what a different way to, uh, to think about power. Um, as a woman, I think about a lot of the, the feedback for uh, women who are in um, professional settings where there's both men and women in the room. And uh, one of the ways to lift each other up as women is to praise what the other women are doing, um, which might get missed. Uh, your power is in your praise. Your your power is in that that relationship. Um, so I, I, obviously that's not exactly what's going on here, but just that concept of power and praise really seems to kind of flow out in really interesting ways. 
Yeah, and it's one of the great things about reading Psalms as poetry. Mm. I mean, we sometimes uh, can lose the sense of of what's special about poetry and its its ability to bring out new sort of nuances of meaning mm-hmm. by putting different concepts, different words right up next to each other. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't think of, of praise and uh, a horn being connected, especially horn as a symbol of power. But when they're juxtaposed this way in the, in the poetry of the psalm, it's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. But that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a great way to end our conversation for today. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Now remember, you can always check out more of our stuff on firstreadingpodcast.com. Leave us a message. Tell us what you think about politics, about the current state of our world. Ah, you're kind of poking a big hornet's nest there, Rachel. Good point. Just tell us what you think of the podcast. And if you found it helpful, share it with a friend. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McMinch. Thanks for listening.